Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. For new listeners, this podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what may be loosely and collectively called the laws of war. If you are new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and explain some of the basic framework of these legal regimes and introduce some of the issues that are to be examined in more detail through discussion with experts in the following episodes. And if you are a regular listener, thanks again for your support and please help spread the word about the podcast and feel free to send me ideas for future episodes. More info about the podcast with links to the materials discussed, reading recommendations, and bios of our guests can be found on our website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. Our guests today are well known to our regular listeners as well as anyone else in the field and need a little introduction. Professors Monica Hakimi of the Columbia Law School, Adil Haq of Rutgers Law School, and Marco Milanovic of the University of Reading School of Law. I might add that among their other various credentials and roles, Monica is editor-in-chief of the American Journal of International Law, Adil is an executive editor at Just Security, and Marco is co-editor of Usual Talk and on the editorial board of the European Journal of International Law. They've all been on the podcast before, and you can, of course, find links to their bios on the webpage. The topic for discussion is whether self-defense is understood under Article 51 of the UN Charter and the USAID Bellum regime more broadly is applicable in the context of Gaza. There's been some confusion over this issue in not only political debate, but also the legal discourse around the conflict in Gaza, with states and legal scholars alike being split on whether the right of self-defense applies here, and even over what the implications are if the USAID Bellum regime has not been triggered and is not operating in the context of this conflict. As we discuss, this apparent confusion has important implications, not just for this particular conflict, but for the understanding of significant aspects of the USAID Bellum regime more generally. And thus, notwithstanding the urgency of other issues, such as the potential grave violations of IHL and crimes against humanity that are unfolding in the conflict, some of which must await more evidence and investigation in order to be resolved, we thought it important to explore the significant questions about the USAID Bellum regime that have been raised and which do not require much in the way of evidence to discuss or resolve. So, just to give you a very brief roadmap, we drill down into the precise nature of the relationship between Articles 2.4 and 51 of the UN Charter, and whether self-defense can operate independent of the prohibition on the use of force, the problem of bad facts giving rise to bad law, and the danger that state positions and practice in relation to this conflict may impact the development of the law in rather negative ways, the old debate over whether non-state actors can be the authors of armed attacks for purposes of Article 51, and whether and how self-defense may apply to the use of force against non-state actors. What difference it makes if Palestine is a state of which Gaza is a part, and whether the prohibition on the use of force may apply to something other than a state, namely a self-determination entity of some kind. As well, while on the topic of self-determination, we explore briefly the issue of legitimate resistance against oppression and occupation by a people entitled to self-determination, and how that might implicate the Yusad Bellum regime. And finally, in examining the implications of whether self-defense and use ad bellum may or may not apply, we discuss the different interpretations of the principle of proportionality within the use ad bellum regime, and the paradox that may flow from the result that if self-defense is deemed not to apply in Gaza, it may actually mean that there are less constraints on the conduct of Israel in its operations there. It's a fascinating conversation that reveals that there remain uncertainties and differences of opinion on the scope and operation of the use ad bellum regime in general, and the doctrine of self-defense in particular, particularly when it is potentially implicated by conflicts between states and non-state actors 
in territory the status of which is quite unsettled. I'll leave it at that and let you draw your own conclusions. So with that, let's turn to the conversation. Well, Adil, Marco, Monica, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you all. And thank you so much for making time for this. Our pleasure. Yep. Thank you. So our primary focus today is the question of whether the right to self-defense under Article 51 of the Charter applies in the context of Gaza and how an analysis of the situation in Gaza helps to clarify the scope and operation of the doctrine of self-defense under the use of Bellum. And there's been some confusion on this front, with many states, including the United States, invoking Israel's right of self-defense, even while Israel itself has not done so formally. And scholars writing about the conflict have advanced a number of different interpretations and arguments in relation to the question. So in my view, it's an important issue for a number of reasons, some relating to the practical implications for the conflict and others relating to preserving a clear understanding of the legal regime itself. But I think before we get to that, I think many of our listeners will be wondering why are we talking about this when the significant implications of the IHL issues and possible serious and grave violations of IHL would seem far more important. So I thought perhaps we should begin by talking briefly about why this question deserves some time, notwithstanding the humanitarian crisis unfolding on the IHL level. So who wants to lead off on that? Adil. Sure. So first, I think it is significant because uh, this question about the right of self-defense has uh, been a sticking point in debates in the United Nations, both in the Security Council and in the General Assembly, uh, where the United States uh, has in part justified its repeated vetoes of ceasefire resolutions on the grounds that these resolutions did not affirm Israel's right of self-defense. And on the other side, uh, other states have said that they will not accept uh, a resolution that uh, states that Israel has a right of self-defense in this context uh, because they believe that Israel's right of self-defense is not engaged, either because Hamas is a non-state actor or because Hamas is a, a threat emerging from occupied territory. There are some additional ways in which uh, the concept of self-defense has been a sticking point for some states. So Germany and to a lesser extent Austria have opposed a ceasefire resolution in part because their starting point is that Israel has a right of self-defense, which is engaged in the current conflict. And they perceive a demand for a ceasefire as inconsistent, as incompatible with Israel's right of self-defense. If Israel has a legal right to prosecute this war, how can anyone tell them not to do so? And so to the extent that we, or some of us, I, would like to see this conflict end as soon as possible, I think it's important to address the right of self-defense and to show either that it is not engaged or that it is compatible with demands for a ceasefire. I should say up front, there's, of course, another very obvious reason, uh, justification for uh, a ceasefire demand, which is that even if, in principle, one or both of these parties might have a right to use force. The way they are doing so is in systematic violation of international humanitarian law with no indication that they will ever stop these violations. And so at a certain point, I think it's acceptable for the international community to say, if you can't fight by the rules, you just can't fight at all. And so this war must simply end, even if hypothetically, counterfactually, one or both of you might have a right to fight but the war we actually see uh, unfolding before our eyes uh, cannot be justified and must end. So I think there are other ways to 
address these concerns and insist on a ceasefire, but I think it is still useful to examine the the premises that some states seem to be operating under. Okay. And Monica, you wanted to add something? Well, yeah, I'll just add, um, in addition to what Adil just said, that, you know, obvi- well, maybe not obviously, but for me, the conflict in Gaza and in Israel uh, before then is basically a grotesque failure on the part of humanity. And my view is that there's plenty of blame to go around, both for actions that have been taken and for actions that have not missed opportunities along the way that have sort of led us to this point. And I think for me, the reason, the one reason to talk about the use of bellum is that it might help sharpen our understanding of why international law has not helped humanity do better, because I do think it gives us a window into some of the dynamics that are playing out in the use of bellum. And as we'll talk about, you know, one of the issues, of course, is that the use of bellum is a, a statist regime. It's structured on the idea that cross-border force is prohibited. And it rests for its salience very much, in my view, on state boundaries being settled and assigned to particular entities as states. And so the fact that the boundaries here are not settled and that the two sides are are fighting over sort of who is entitled to the same plot of land helps to expose, I think, some of the limits of the use of bellum as well as the limits of international law thus far in this context. Because, of course, historically, such conflicts have often been resolved, by which I mean conflicts over land have often been resolved through violence. And I'll just make a plug that Ingrid Brunt and I are actually working on a paper on this very topic. So wow. I've been like obsessed with this question of settled or unsettled territorial boundaries and how they might um, propel cycles of violence. Fascinating. Okay, well, we're going to circle back to some of your earlier work as well on the extent to which states can use force against non-state actors and whether non-state actors can commit armed attacks. But Marco, turning to you for a moment, can you feel free to add some thoughts to what Adil and Monica have said, but turning to the question as well as what is the best understanding of the relationship between Article 2.4 and Article 51, you wrote recently in Egil Talk that Article 51 self-defense is an exception to the prohibition on the use of force under Article 2.4. And thus, if the actions in this case of Israel do not constitute a use of force against another state, then Article 2.4 is not implicated, and so neither is the exception, neither can be the exception. So maybe you want to just flesh out that argument for us as we sort of drill into this relationship between uh, Article 2.4 and Article 51. Sure. I mean, on the on the prior point about why talk about the use ad bellum, I, I would add just one thing. I mean, that at least in principle, the use ad bellum is about the big picture. It looks at the conflict as a whole. And, you know, it assigns lawfulness or unlawfulness to essentially the use of force as a whole by one party. Uh, whereas IHL, the use in Bello, is much more atomized. It looks at specific uses of force in specific contexts. It is super fact sensitive in a way that the use of Bellum is necessarily not. So, for example, one could argue, I'm not saying that is what I'm arguing, one could argue that it is difficult to say that Israel's uses of force in Gaza are violations of IHL, because we would need way more facts to do that, but that nonetheless, Israel's actions exceed what it's, it's permitted to do under the USAID bellum, under the charter. So for example, it enables that type of argument. Yeah. Right. So that's why, that's why looking at the USAID bellum is important. The problem is, as Monica said, though, is that this regime was designed for state. And all of the difficulties, or at least so many of the difficulties that arise in this particular context, 
are caused by the fact we don't have two parties that are fighting that are states. You know, it is easy to apply the use of bellum to Russia, Ukraine, not simply because one state, you know, is obviously right and the other is obviously wrong. It's structurally, you have two states fighting in a very classical way. Yeah. Here, on the other hand, you have, I don't know even how to describe this, you know, uh, a layered cake of weirdness that just grows and grows and grows and has grown like that for a century or, or whatever. And, you know, everything about Israel-Palestine is sui generis. And so when you try to apply a legal regime to something like that, you're going to have huge problems. Now, that brings me to your point, you know, the relationship between Article 2.4 and 51. I mean, the, the basic point is this. The UN Charter was not meant to regulate every use of force. I think everybody should be on board with this basic proposition, right? So if, for example, there was a rebellion here in Serbia, where I'm coming from, and the government of Serbia used force to suppress that rebellion, that is not an issue the Yusef Bellum has anything to say on. Yeah, The UN Charter in absolutely no way limits what a state does in an internal situation like that one. It was simply not meant to do that. The, the rules of IHL have lots to say, but the UN Charter has nothing to say on this, at least Article 2, Paragraph 4, and Article 51. Yeah? Right. So the weirdness about Israel-Gaza is that, you know, there is this whole issue of whether 2-4 is even engaged which depends essentially primarily on whether Palestine should already be, be considered to be a state or not. If Palestine is a state, we're on much safer ground. If Palestine is not a state, it is non-obvious. I, I can put it simply that. It is non-obvious that Article 2, Paragraph 4 applies. To my mind, I find it really difficult to conceive of any purpose to the right to self-defense that is not conceived of as an exception to the prohibition of the use of force. I don't see how... Article 51 can apply if Article 2, Paragraph 4 does not apply. When Israel was fighting Hamas fighters on 7th of October on the territory of Israel itself, Article 51 just, was just irrelevant. I mean, there was nothing that Article 51 said on that. Yeah. So that, that would be sort of my, the core of my argument. And then only if you reach that issue that Article 2, Paragraph 4 is engaged, do you get to the separate question which Monica previously raised which is whether armed attacks in the sense of Article 51 can be committed by non-state actors. So you have non-state actor issues that sort of both ends of this equation. One is whether the prohibition of the use of force even applies, and the other is whether Article 51 applies to armed attacks by non-state actors. Okay, but we're going to leave that for a moment because we, we want to sure. stick with this, this idea of the relationship because people like Nicholas Sigurius uh, and others have made the argument that no, 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 no. Article 51 is independent of Article 2.4, and the language of Article 51 gives rise to this argument that it is, it is a standalone provision that has its origin in, in customary international law. There's this inherent right, and then nothing in the Charter, including Article 2.4, stands in the way of Article 51. And that even if Article 2.4 is not implicated, even if this isn't a use of force against another state, nonetheless, Article 51 applies. And... So, Adil, you have written a lot on this issue and have drilled into the trouble preparatoire of the Charter. So perhaps you can wade in here and, and explain why Nicholas's argument might not be right. <laughs> well, Nicholas's particular argument has uh, very particular problems, uh, which maybe we can talk about uh, later. So in a way, I'm of two minds about this. 
I agree with Nicholas that the right of self-defense had a separate existence from the charter and that the task of the charter drafters was to integrate the right of self-defense into this new charter framework, including at the end of that process, Article 2.4. So if you look at the discussions, it was clear that they thought that there was a right of self-defense against aggression, against armed aggression, and that that right of self-defense would be integrated into the Security Council's general responsibility to maintain or restore international peace and security as a kind of stopgap if the Security Council failed. And then integrating Chapter 7 of the Charter into Article 2.4 was done in in a two-step process, first by saying the use of force is prohibited if it is in international relations and contrary to the purposes of the Charter. The purposes of the Charter include collective security measures And then in a further step, the right of self-defense is part of that collective security apparatus because it performs this sort of stopgap function. I would also note that Article 2.4, by its terms, only imposes an obligation on member states of the United Nations. And yet, if a new state were to emerge in Palestine or Kurdistan or Western Sahara or anywhere else, that state presumably would have a right of self-defense even before it joins the United Nations. So in those ways, I agree that the right of self-defense has an independent existence from the charter, although the charter had the effect of crystallizing the content of that right. All of that being said, I think the content of the right was a right to use force and self-defense in response to an armed attack by another state. And it is for that reason that the exercise of self-defense will always or almost always involve the use of force against another state or its armed forces. So in that way, I agree with Marco that the right of self-defense will almost always be relevant where one state is using force against another state, and it has to justify that use of force in terms of self-defense. So I agree with that. I just think that that is a consequence of the internal structure of the right as a right to use force in response to aggression by another state, it is not downstream of Article 2.4 itself. Article 2.4 almost enters in at the end when we're trying to reconcile the right of self-defense with Article 2.4. So uh, I kind of run the analysis from the other other way around. I hope that was clear. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts here. Yeah. So, I mean, you've argued in some of your blog posts that you take the position that indeed Article 51 has to be understood as limiting the use of force against other states and that indeed armed attacks can only be conducted by states. But I think Marco's argument, as I understood it, was that even if, and we're going to drill into this question of whether non-state actors can commit armed attacks and whether the right to self-defense is available against non-state actors. But I think Marco's argument was even if we accept that non-state actors can commit armed attacks, and even if states can exercise self-defense against non-state actors, those non-state actors are always in the territory of another state, and so, or usually. And therefore, the use of force against the non-state actor within the territory of another state implicates Article 2.4 because it's a use of force against another state. Whereas if you were using force against pirates or you know Hamas on a boat in the middle of the ocean, well, then you're not using force against another state. And even if we accept that you can use force against non-state actors, and even if self-defense is available against non-state actors, in that case, 
it isn't implicated. Article 2.4 isn't implicated because it's not a use of force against the state. And therefore, Article 51 doesn't apply because Article 51 is only an exception. So I guess, Marco, first of all, do I have that right? And Adil, what do you say to that before we get into the whole, but can you actually use force against non-state actors and do non-state actors commit armed attacks? Yes. So let's just do a mental experiment, right? Imagine there was a Hamas fleet on the high seas and Israel bombed the Hamas fleet on the high seas. To my mind, the Yusat Bellum has literally nothing to say about this issue. Imagine there were Hamas terrorist astronauts on the moon and they're launching stuff at Israel from the moon and Israel bombed the moon. The prohibition of the use of force is not engaged. Self-defense has nothing to say about this. That's, that's like my basic point. Imagine they were operating from Antarctica. You do not need self-defense to use force against Hamas or, or polar bears, in, or not polar bears, penguins in Antarctica. But you, you know what I mean, okay? So that's the core issue. The core issue is whether the territory of Gaza is protected by this prohibition. And I think you can argue that only in two ways. Argument one would be to say that Palestine is already a state and Gaza is part of that state. And that, I think, is the easier argument to make. And a separate argument would be to say that self-determination units, territories of this kind, are also protected by Article 2.4 as if they were states, even though they're not. And that argument, I think, is much more difficult to make. Yeah, so that, that would be my core point. All right. And, and I want to you know, delay our getting to those two sort of ancillary issues. But so, Adil, what's your take on Marco's position? You, you agree with that? So not quite. So I think that, and, and again, it, it, it's tough for me because I'm, I'm assuming a premise that I actually reject. But if uh, attacks by non-state actors were to, were to trigger the right of self-defense, then the justification for using force against this Hamas fleet uh, could very well be the right of self-defense. Now, why would you need uh, such a justification since there's no uh, use of force on the territory of another state? Well, one reason might be that you might think that human rights law uh, prohibits the arbitrary deprivation of life and that a deprivation of life is arbitrary if it lacks a legal basis. And so if you're going to use lethal force, you need some legal basis for that. Now, if it's on your own territory, then the legal basis is your right as a state to maintain the security of your state and the safety of your people. If you're using force extraterritorially, then you'll need some other legal basis for that. And, and note, I mean, this is maybe more acute if there are civilians involved, where obviously they are in the actual conflict that, that we're witnessing. And there we want to know, well, okay, where does your legal right to use force in the first place and kill all these people derive from? Now, it's my very long-standing position that this cannot come from international humanitarian law, that international humanitarian law does not confer rights or any legal basis or legal authority for the use of force. That must always be sought in some other body of international law, whether it's the right of self-defense or something else. So that might be a function that the right of self-defense could perform, even if there is no use of force against or on the territory of another state. And just to circle back, I'll just reinforce Marco's point that we, we may be discussing a, a counterfactual, uh, because Palestine is a state, and it is also a self-determination unit. And although Marco, I suppose, is, is correct, that 
explaining how the prohibition of force attaches to self-determination units takes a few extra steps, I, I think those steps can be taken. And I so, so I, I endorse the view uh, that the prohibition of uh, forcible deprivation of self-determination is a rule of, of international law that can be integrated into Article 2.4. And so that would be implicated uh, in the case that we're actually witnessing. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that point. But so, and, and before, Monica, I want to turn to you in a moment to, to, to get into this whole debate about can non-state actors commit armed attacks and can there be a right of self-defense against non-state actors? But I mean, just to take up on the, one of those points, I mean, if you're using some kind of military violent force, I, I hesitate to use the word use of force, but if you're engaging in military violence against this Hamas fleet or this this pirate fleet, and you're saying that, well, maybe self-defense provides a legal justification, but are you then suggesting that use that bellum applies to that action if it's just a, a use of violent a military force against pirates? I don't know because I'm assuming something that I don't uh, that I don't believe, which is that non-state actors can trigger the right of self-defense. I see. Uh, so, so I'm not sure how to how one would would flesh out that view. But I think if you were to integrate non-state actors into the Usad Bellum regime, you would have to do so by requiring that the use of defensive force against non-state actors. Uh, cannot exceed the limits of necessity and proportionality and must have a legitimate aim. And that would be the the effect of integrating them into, into the regime. And then you would have to ask whether it is necessary to use this kind and degree of force in order to prevent this armed attack by this non-state actor. And in principle, if there are civilians in harm's way, you would have to ask whether the total harm inflicted on civilians is justified by your legitimate defensive aim. So then, yes, then the Usad Bellum regime would apply in total uh, to the use of force against a non-state actor, even not in the territory of a state or even not in the territory of a self-determination unit. Wow. Okay. So things are even more confused than I thought. But let's turn, Monica, to you. And I mean, this this issue of whether non-state actors can conduct armed attacks and whether self-defense is available against non-state actors is a long-standing, ongoing debate that uh, arguably took a turn after 9-11. You did a deep dive in a, uh, an article for the Naval War College, if I remember correctly, on this issue several years ago, but I think it probably still, well, you'll tell us if you think it still reflects the current state of the law. Explain to us where the state of the law is from your perspective on this debate. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, so, so I'm going to answer the question, but I'm going to answer it by way first of just piggybacking off Marco. Because my view, you on Marco's position is that it is, I think it's probably doctrinally right if one takes, for example, the ICJ opinion and the Wall case. I think Marco's view is probably the best take on the ICJ's opinion in the Wall case and is a way of nicely making coherent the sort of like doctrinal structure of the use of bellum within the terms of the charter. I also think it's possible that just as a historical matter, the precise relationship between Article 51 and Article 2.4 was not actually hashed out at the time the charter was adopted, that Article 51 was something that reflected a sort of understanding in some sort that got that got incorporated into the charter and that Article 2.4 was also imposed there and that not everyone had, for example, a meeting of the minds of exactly what it required. And I think we see this in the ordinary course in the application of Article 51. I mean, probably the central question in the use of bellum is the proper relationship between Article 2.4 and Article 51, assuming that Article 2.4 applies. 
And one thing that is interesting in this context is that we're asking the question of what the relationship is between them, opening up the question of whether Article 24 applies. So it's, it's, a, it's a different sort of vector of analysis, but it is still sort of posing what I think is really the central question of the use of Bellum, which is how these two provisions or rights and obligations, how this right and obligation, how they relate to each other. And from my perspective, the best way to analyze that question and to understand how they relate to each other, given that the relationship has not been crystallized and clearly defined in any particular text, is to look at what states and other actors do when actually applying these provisions in real cases. And so, and not to assume that what they do in one case necessarily has implications for what they do in another case, like they might be applying their understanding of it on those facts. And that understanding might not be similarly applicable in a different setting on a different set of facts. So to, to get closer to the ground of what states in particular, but also other agents do in applying these principles in concrete cases. And so I would just say that in this case, one sees a common invocation of self-defense by those who want to defend Israel's right to use force in Gaza as well as some silence or refusal to acknowledge that right by those who do not. And so I think the best way to understand what the law is in this case is as somewhat splintered and fractured and not clear. But that doesn't mean, as some will take it to mean, that we don't have law here. It means, in my view, that the law is not evenly or widely or consistently understood by all who are participating in its application and construction. And so I would say that for some group of actors, what Israel's, Israel does clearly has the right to use force and self-defense. And for others, it does not, or at least the question is open and contested, and they don't feel comfortable taking a position on that. And I think this dynamic is, now to answer your question, Craig, a... a well, but before we move on, though, I, I guess one question I have in response to that, and I mean, I think that's like a really helpful intervention, but I guess the, the question I have is, isn't there a risk, right, you know, the old aphorism that bad facts make for bad law? And isn't there a risk that in situations like Gaza in particular, which is hugely politically charged, that the reaction of states don't necessarily reflect their best understanding of the law in the abstract sense and, and the relationship between Article 51 and, and 2.4, but rather the law is being used in rather instrumental and result-oriented ways that are precisely why I think this question is so important because it risks distorting and, and, and undermining the integrity of the legal regime. So, so I, I wonder, like, how much should we take seriously the statements or actions of states in these cases where, you know, bad facts might make for bad law? What do you say to that? So I think bad facts often do make bad law. I think law is made in a constant iterative process of, of different agents participating in its construction over time. And so I think it's very possible. I think we should be open to the possibility that improper biases, self-interest, other political considerations are informing how particular agents are engaging with the law. But that doesn't change the social meaning that is constructed through their interactions over time as to what they are sort of signaling to others about what they think is appropriate and rightful and what is not. And so even if it's the case that this, that this particular incident might lead to bad law, as you put it, uh, I don't think we can deny the fact that that is what's happening. And then the answer, in my view, is to insist on those who think that this is an iteration of bad law 
to respond in kind and to prevent it from further going down this direction. And we can use, for example, the 2014 ISIS incident as an example. So in the ISIS case, there was this very urgent, I think, sense among at least the states that participated in the sort of like international conversation about what to do on ISIS, that the use of force against ISIS was not only appropriate and not only uh, permissible, but almost necessary in order to deal with the very severe threat that was going on there. And that led a number of commentators to say like, well, look, the law on self-defense has moved in a direction so as to permit defensive force against non-state actors. But there was an effort by a number of states, both collectively and individually, to say, no, 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 we, this, this was, for example, us applying the law on these facts in this case, we don't mean to signal that, for example, the unable or unwilling standard is law across the board. And so to bring it back in a little bit, and, and that's the message to states that have a problem with what's happening here is that they need to take steps and be vocal about what their position is and to help rein it back in to the extent that, that thing, they think that's what's necessary. So to go back to answering the question that you originally posed to me, I do think yeah. the dynamics that I described way back when in 2015, I think it was, continue to more or less reflect the state of affairs in this area of law, which is to say that it is a kind of law that is unsettled, that it is fractured, it is not evenly or across the board widely understood in similar terms. And that means that there are opportunities and spaces to move it in particular cases and to move it in either direction, depending on what states and other actors do with it when presented with the facts to which they apply it. Right. And just, I mean, for the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read your article, and I'm going to post a link to it, of course, on, on the page, but you look at state practice and determine that some states clearly believe that non-state actors can commit armed attacks and that states can use force against non-state actors as an exercise of self-defense. And some states adhere to a deal's position that non-state actors cannot conduct armed attacks. And if they do something that looks like an armed attack, it's not an armed attack for purposes of Article 51. And there's no right of self-defense against non-state actors, whether they're inside a state or not. And so your finding was, look, it's really unsettled. And it became unsettled in, in particular after 9-11 and then assisted by things like actions against uh, ISIS in Syria. Yeah, that's right. Can I just add, I think over time, I think it has continued to have the ambiguities and discrepancies that I described back in the day. And actually, Adel wrote this great write-up on a discussion that was had before the Security Council, I think in 2020, is that right? In which in which states took different positions, and many of them hemmed and hawed and did not really take a position at all. And I guess I want to say to those states, to the extent that they're listening who are inclined to fit, sit on the fence and not to take a position, that that move, in my view, makes authority and the permissibility of particular operations irrelevant. It's not that, that they are, it might be that they're holding out and they're saying, we're not giving it to you, but they're also not doing anything. And they're saying, we're also not denying it to you. We're just sort of sitting here silently doing nothing. And so, again, the message that I would convey to them is that the option of doing nothing is an option. It is always doing something because it's, other things are happening around them. And so as unfair as this is, and I recognize that it is, the world is not, I don't think, a fair playing field. It is incumbent on these states to the extent that they have a problem with what's happening to actually voice their positions 
and make their views known. Because the alternative might be that, for example, Israel in this case, or the United States in the ISIS case, does not have like complete authority for what it wants to do, but is still able to do it because it is also not being denied that authority. It is just operating in a little bit of a gray zone in which the response is one of something between silence and permission with very rare, often disconnected from particular incidents, indicators of discontent. All right. So the message for all listeners is to write blog posts and articles too sweet that silence is not an option. So before we get back to the other complicating factor of is Palestine a state, does that matter? And do self-determination units have protection under Article 2.4? I think it's important to just underline, right, that even if there is no right of self-defense in this instance, and that USAD Bellum does not apply in a line with Marco's argument, it doesn't lead to the conclusion that Michael Schmidt and a number of other writers have that, well, that would mean that Israel has no recourse, right? I think it, it needs to be underlined that all it means is Israel would have recourse and can use force, uh, not in Article 2.4 terms, but can use military violence or action against a invading force in the same way the country can use force against pirates. It just wouldn't be governed by USAID Bellum. It would be governed by IHL. Marco, you want to weigh in on that? So I'm, I'm not sure Mike Schmidt actually believes that. What is true is this. If one takes the position that the Article 2.4 prohibition of use of force applies, and one also takes the view that non-state actors cannot commit armed attacks, so that's a deal's position, that does mean that any use of force by Israel on the territory of Palestine without Palestine consent would be unlawful. One gunshot fired would be unlawful. So that's the position of, well, I'm not going to put stuff in the deal's mouth, but that's certainly the position of, say, Mary Ellen O'Connell, right? right. You know, her view is zero force is permitted under those circumstances. The view that I described, which is that if 2-4 is not engaged at all, under that view, the fact that Israel would not nominally have the right to self-defense, that would mean what you just said, which is that there would be nothing prohibiting Israel from using force on the territory of Gaza, save the rules of IHL, human rights, and so on, right? right? So the Yusat Bellum would be no constraining factor, just like it's not a constraining factor if Israel uses force on its own territory, essentially. All right. So what about the complicating issue of if Palestine is a state and Gaza is a part of Palestine and leaving aside whether the actions, well, I guess we can't leave aside. So the other complicating wrinkle to this is, can the actions of Hamas be attributed back to the government of Palestine, whether that's Palestinian Authority or whatever? How does that complicate the analysis? And Marco, maybe we can start with you and then go around the, the table. So when it comes to the question of Palestine statehood, there's really two arguments. One argument is that to emerge as a state, an entity has to have government over people in a defined territory, even if when we say defined territory, the boundaries of the territory can be disputed. And that simply by virtue of Israel's control over most of Palestine, there was no point in time at which Palestine ever had such effectiveness. So the basic effectiveness criteria for the emergency statehood were simply never met. That's the argument why Palestine is not a state. If you want to read the classical sort of iteration of that argument, that would be James Crawford's Eagle article, I don't know, many years ago, when he explains sort of in a response to another piece that in his view, Palestine never reached 
that level of effectiveness for statehood. And, you know, on creation of states issues, you know, you go with uh, James Crawford is like the first person you would turn to. The other view would be, though, that things have changed in the past two decades in particular. And the key turning point was 2012, was it when the U.N. General Assembly voted to grant by 140 votes in favor, something like that, a couple of votes against 40 states or something abstaining. Sorry, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips to grant Palestine a non-member observer state status in the assembly. And you could say, well, through collective recognition, the international community, by an overwhelming majority, compensated for the defects in the lack of effectiveness by Palestine. Now, I would just note there is this schizophrenic aspect to the position of Palestine itself, right? On the one hand, it argues, yes, we're already a state. Look at us. We join all these treaties. Here are we in the UN. On the other hand, what they want is a two-state solution. And a two-state solution assumes the second state is yet to be formed, basically, right? So anyway, I think both of these views are plausible. Both can be reasonably held. The view that Palestine today is a state is, I think, substantially stronger today than it was 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Yeah, so all the you know, action by the international community to affirm the statehood of Palestine makes a difference. Whether it makes enough of a difference is the debated issue. Right. But I mean, we could have at least two episodes devoted strictly to the question of is Palestine a state? But I guess the, 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 the central question, though, is if Palestine is a state, assuming for the sake of argument that Palestine is a state, that changes the analysis, right? Because now the Israeli use of force is a use of force in Article 2.4 terms, and Article 51 then becomes implicated, am I right? Correct. So the situation would be no different than when Israel uses force against Hezbollah in Lebanon. It would be exactly the same. Yeah. So the, you know, structurally, the issue would be exactly the same. And then we just get into all the complications of are the actions of Hamas attributable to the Palestinian Authority or to use the language of Nicaragua? Are they substantially, or is the Palestinian Authority substantially involved in the actions of Hamas sufficient to trigger? And then that, that's a whole other uh, argument. But if Palestine is the state, then we agree, or, or I'm being presumptuous, I'm going to go around the table, but I, I assume we agree that Article 2.4 and even Article 51 then apply. I do? Yeah, absolutely. Monica? Yep. So I don't know if we really want to get into the whole unwilling or unable argument and whether Hamas's actions can be attributed to the Palestinian Authority. I do, I see you nodding. Do you want to take a, a swing at that before we move to self-determination? Maybe just very, very quickly, just to point out that one of the reasons why a new rule on self-defense against non-state actors have not crystallized, is that even those states who think that in principle the right of self-defense can extend to non-state actors, they disagree quite fundamentally among themselves about the conditions under which that would be true. And so the, the narrower position held by a number of European states is that the right of self-defense should be extended beyond uh, armed attacks by another state to armed attacks by non-state actors, but only when those non-state actors have uh, enduring control over territory, exercise governmental functions, and have uh, military capability to conduct sustained military operations. 
However, that is not the view that the United States or the United Kingdom have propounded. They propounded this much, much broader view. And because even the states who support extending the right of self-defense to non-state actors, because they disagree so fundamentally among themselves, it is very, very hard to see that a new rule has emerged or that the old rule has been extended in a determinate way. Right. And and to, to Monica's point, I mean, I think some countries in the global south have actually not been silent on this issue. Like Brazil has quite vehemently argued that it does not accept the unwilling or unable doctrine. But Monica, what's your take on this? Well, just going back to the question of Palestinian statehood, I think one way to understand the relevance, as I sort of intimated this in my earlier remarks, but one way to understand the relevance of the use of Malam in this context is it has certain explanatory force for why this situation is such a can of worms. And the reason, this, the explanation that one might get from it is that neither actually Palestinian nor Israeli fully statehood is secure. Each of them understands in their own views, and obviously for Palestine, it's a more there's a more serious state of insecurity that their statehood is not secure, um, and that they therefore cannot be understood to be sort of like restrained in the way that they might be if they felt like their statehood was completely secure. So I do think that the the statist structure it doesn't it doesn't help us solve the problem. It actually helps to explain why, in my view the problem is so intractable and why international law is not actually a particularly useful, to this point, uh, curant or solvent for the problem, but instead helps to expose like the realities of the problem and why it is as severe as it is. And I think, I mean, Marco mentioned that the Palestinians have this sort of schizophrenic position on statehood, but I mean, the same can be said for countries like, if not Israel, and certainly the United States, right? I mean, the United States is invoking self-defense, but at the same time denies that Palestine is a state, which which seems to, you know, create some real problems in the context of the argument that we've been having. So perhaps and I'm mindful of, of the time when we most definitely want to spend a little time talking about the scope and operation of the principle of proportionality in the event that self-defense uh, applies. But Perhaps we can take a few minutes to just talk a little bit about this idea of whether self-determination units or entities have a right of protection under Article 2.4. And I guess related to that is the argument that is out in the discourse that somehow the actions of Hamas, regardless of the extent to which they were egregious violations of IHL and crimes against humanity and war crimes, were nonetheless can be seen as acts of resistance that are legitimate on the part of self-determination units that are uh, under an oppressive regime. So let's split that up. But first, with the argument of does a self-determination unit, even if it's not yet a state, have a right of protection under Article 2.4? And that would then arguably trigger USAD Bellum in this case and the right of self-defense. Yeah, I, I can take I, I can take a first crack at this. So the Friendly Relations Declaration, uh, which is a General Assembly resolution, generally viewed as a declaratory of customary international law, has parallel prohibitions on the use of armed force and the forcible denial of self determination. So the forcible denial of self determination is prohibited under international law, and indeed is a, a serious breach of a peremptory norm of general international law. And, and so the encroachment on that prohibition would need some explanation 
And then there's a second question about whether these two prohibitions have become uh, fused, such that Article 2.4 itself is implicated by the use of force against a self-determination unit. So back in the 1970s, George Abisab and other scholars argued that, yes, uh, this merger has occurred because by its terms, Article 2.4 prohibits the use of force uh, in its state's international relations, contrary to the purposes of the United Nations Charter. One of the purposes of the United Nations Charter is to respect the self-determination of peoples and use of force uh, outside of state's borders against a self-determination unit would be in its international relations, both because it's extraterritorial and because any resulting armed conflict between the state and the self-determination unit would be an international armed conflict. And this is reflected both in Additional Protocol 1, as well as uh, another General Assembly resolution passed around the same time, which said that if there is an armed conflict between a state and a people exercising their right of self-determination, that is an international armed conflict. And so by uh, harmoniously interpreting Article 2.4 and IHL together, you would view this as a use of force in a state's international relations in an international armed conflict with a self-determination unit, contrary to the purposes of the United Nations Charter, among which are respect for the self-determination of people. So that is the argument uh, that Abisab made then, and I, I continue to find it quite, uh, quite persuasive. All right. And, and what follows from that then is that a use of force by Israel against Palestinians in Gaza would constitute a, a prohibited use of force against a self-determination unit requiring a justification, which, and that justification would be self-defense under Article 51. Monica? Yeah, I would just add that because in some of these documents from the 1970s in which this idea that self-determination entitles a a group to use force against the entity that is denying it that that right, which which I think the 1970 Declaration on Friendly Relations itself sort of sidestepped. But embedded in this conversation was the idea that that right to self-determination and to use force against an oppressing entity was particularly pronounced in contexts of colonialism. And so it's just, and so I just say this as a way of explaining why the the calls of colonialism are legally salient in this context and not just not just maybe politically salient because the right to self-determination is understood to be especially pronounced against entities that are colonizing the entity that is being denied that right. And so the documents from the 1970s and even a little bit beyond then coming out of the General Assembly reflected a very strong insistence by states of the global south, which had then just been newly decolonized, that this right is strong and salient and is not actually precluded by Article 2.4 itself, and that it actually permits these entities to use force against the colonizing enterprise. And that just helps to explain some of the social context in which these calls are being made. Right. So Michael Schmidt actually addresses the language of, well, I think, the friendly relations and the definition of aggression and resolutions in the context of this argument that Palestinians actually have a right to use force against uh, an oppressive Israeli regime. And as you say, with the concept of colonialism and military oppression being really salient aspects of that argument. But he argues that the, the language of, of the provisions can 
better be understood as different kinds of resistance and struggle and that it doesn't include or shouldn't be interpreted to include armed force. Marco, you addressed this in your most recent blog post, this question of whether leaving aside the egregious violations of IHL and everything else that, that characterized Hamas's actions, that nonetheless, one could see Hamas's armed resistance as being legitimate in the context of self-determination. Right. So, I mean, I think it is, to my mind, reasonably clear that Israel's continuing occupation of Palestinian territories through force, because that's what Israel is using all the time, forget 7th of October, before 7th of October, is an action or a series of actions that constitutes a denial of the Palestinian people right to self-determination. Yeah? Some of it is through force, some of it is not through force, but all of it combined is designed to deny the Palestinian people the right to self-determination. That's something the ICJ basically already said in the 2004 wall advisory opinion. The ICJ will, I'm sure, say that again in the new advisory opinion on Palestine that will issue next year. So much so, I think, is really not in doubt. I don't think it can reasonably argue, let me put it that way, that Israel's continuing presence in Palestine does not violate the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. That does not, however, mean that Israel is violating Article 2, Paragraph 4, vis-a-vis the Palestinian people. You can hold view one, the one I just expressed, without thinking in the, the sort of very sort of elongated interpretation of 2.4 of Georges Abissab and so on, that 2.4 actually covers this. You can simply say the right of the Palestinian people's people to self-determination was violated. End of story, right? In the same way, I think you can believe, and I do, that if you're a people subject to oppression, whether in the context of self-determination or some other context, you have the moral and legal right to use force to resist your oppressor. Yeah? So again, it doesn't have to be to obtain statehood. It could be. You know, when the Algerian people fought the French to establish the state of Algeria for their national liberation, I think they had the right to do so. Yeah? In that same way, I think you can reasonably believe that the Palestinian people and such have the right to resist Israel and also to use force in doing so. That, however, does not entail that on 7th of October, Hamas, the organization, committed an act of resistance, let alone an act of self-defense in the sense of Article 51 of the Charter. So the act of, on 7th of October was not designed to repel any kind of ongoing Israeli attack, to push Israel out of occupied Palestine, that's not what they did at all, yeah? So if all Hamas did was tear down the barriers, kill some Israeli soldiers, you could argue that. But what they actually planned to do and did was go into towns, villages, and slaughter as many civilians as possible and take others hostage. And I don't see how anyone can reasonably, and I really use that word deliberately, argue that that's a legitimate act of resistance or an instance of self-defense. It is quite simply an atrocity. So that's what it is. It would be an atrocity, whatever the context. The context does matter. The context does matter that Israel has oppressed the Palestinians for so long. And I understand why young people in Gaza who have no future decide to uh, adopt this ideology of Hamas and decide to do something like that. But that does not in any way justify it. So at least in the eyes of international law, I cannot see how the 7th of October attack could be seen as an act of resistance or an act of self-defense. Okay, but leaving the atrocity aside, 
Um, I, I guess my question is... You can't is, leave the atrocity aside. You cannot leave the atrocity aside. The okay. atrocity was the whole point. That, okay. That's, that, that is what I'm saying. I, and I understand. Right. And I appreciate that. But from a conceptual and theoretical perspective, I just want to drill mm -hmm. into this question of if we accept that there's this right of self-determination and the self right of self-determination gives the people, the self-determining people, some right of resistance, which includes uses of force, not in the Article 2 force sense, but armed resistance. I guess the question is when or in a situation where the self-determining people engage in that military force, perhaps crossing borders or administrative lines into the oppressor's territory in armed resistance, can that, in your view, trigger a right of self-defense? I mean, there are too many assumptions here, but, but let, let, let me put it to you this way. If an armed group was acting on behalf of Ukraine and went from Ukraine onto Russian territory for the purpose of repelling the continuing Russian aggression against Ukraine, Russia would not have the right to self-defense against that armed group, even if they didn't work for the Ukrainian state. Yeah, If you accept the theory that self-defense could even apply to attacks by non-state actors. Does that answer your question? Sort of, yeah. but, but the context there is you already have an aggressor, right? So there's no self-defense to self-defense. But what about, pick Algeria? What if the Algerians had gone into France and engaged in attacks on military forces in France? From France's perspective, the situation is crystal clear. From France's perspective, Article 51 would not apply because Algeria was French territory. And all of it was happening in France. And Article 2, 4, and 51 had nothing to say about the French-Algerian war, is what the French would say. And I think it's actually correct. Okay. Uh, Monica, you've been trying to get in. Well, no, I was just going to say, I agree with Marco's analysis. Um, but also, Craig, to your question, I think the question um, assumes that the borders are settled. Yeah. Um, and part of the problem is that the borders are not settled. And so that is part of why this frame of sort of resisting the occupier's force and taking it to the occupier and, and, and engaging in the conflict there, in my view, helps to produce a cycle of extremist violence as opposed to a solving of the problem. And the reason is, again, that each side is denying the other the any territorial autonomy at all. And so, so long as that is like the dynamic in this context, which it is, it is in a critical way, I think, different from, for example, the Algerians throwing off the French. Because the when the Algerians throw off the French, the French just go back to France proper. And there's a question here about how to deal with the fact that these two ethnic groups clearly cannot live side by side next to each other, and neither is actually willing to ensure the security of the other. And so, and, and not only that, but each is willing affirmatively to, to impact the security of the other, to deny the other security. And so in that dynamic, the question of like, how do you tease out the right to self-determination by parking back to an, a historic era in which it was used in the, for example, classic decolonization mode, the Algerians pushing off the French, it, there's so much that gets lost in that translation and so many hard questions that actually need to be answered before I think that question is a practical matter can help us analyze the facts on the ground. Right. 
So I'm assuming this relates to your piece with Ingrid that we'll, we'll be looking forward to. I'm very mindful of the time, and and I but I do want to give us a few minutes to talk about the principle of proportionality and to, to a lesser extent, necessity, right? So again, if we accept that use ad bellum does apply here and that self-defense is applicable, then of course, the principles of necessity and proportionality apply as constraints and limitations on appropriate use of force. But there are debates over how to interpret the principle of proportionality as well as necessity. And Adil, I see you wanting to tackle that question first. So actually, I was wondering if I can say just one more thing about self-determination and resistance. So first, I strongly agree with Marco that the attacks on October 7th, it's not just that they were uh, prohibited by IHL and or constitute war crimes. It's that they just weren't acts of resistance in the first place. So the right of resistance, including through armed struggle, does not even in principle reach attacks on civilians of the kind that we saw. So there are internal limitations on the right of resistance over and above the external constraints placed on it by international humanitarian law. So mass murder is just not a form of armed struggle. It is not even in principle licensed by the right of resistance, as well as being violations of IHL and war crimes. And and just because I invoked uh, George Abisab uh, earlier, I'll invoke him again just to underscore that one of the projects of third world international lawyers in the 1960s and 70s was to conceptualize wars of national liberation as international armed conflicts precisely to subject them to what were then the more demanding and more constraining rules of the law of international armed conflict. So the goal was not to exempt national liberation movements from IHL requirements, but precisely to subject national liberation movements to those requirements, as well as giving those movements the benefit of certain rights to prisoner of war status and and so on. So I just wanted to underscore that aspect of what Marco said. Okay, um, so proportionality. Proportionality, right. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the various complications of conceptualizing this conflict under the Yusid Bellum regime and assigning a right of self-defense to Israel in this context. However, I do think it is useful for discursive purposes to grant for the sake of argument and ask if Israel's right of self-defense was engaged, would that permit the military campaign that we have seen unfold over the last two plus months? And the answer to that question is no. And this is significant both for Israel itself, as well as for its supporters, as well as for those increasing number of states who in principle affirm Israel's right of self-defense, but are horrified by the total harm inflicted on civilians by Israel's campaign. So in the piece I wrote, which you you mentioned, um, I I make really two points. So one is that Israel's stated aim in this conflict is not simply to halt or repel ongoing armed attacks against Israel by Hamas in the form of indiscriminate rocket fire, or even to recover the Israeli hostages who are being unlawfully held in captivity. Uh, Instead, Israel's goal is the complete destruction of Hamas as a military and political organization. So there's one question about whether that is a legitimate goal of self-defense at all. And then there's a further question. If your goal 
is not simply to deal with the immediate threat you face, but to go beyond that and to destroy your adversary. And it is the pursuit of that latter goal that is imposing ruinous costs on tens of thousands, indeed millions of civilians. Does the total harm you are inflicting on civilians to achieve that further goal of totally vanquishing your adversary outweigh the benefit of destroying your adversary as opposed to halting the immediate armed attack that you face? So Ukraine's stated aim with respect to Russia is to push Russian forces out of Ukraine and then stop and cease, seek a ceasefire, an armistice, or some other stable arrangement. And only if Russia just won't accept that would the fighting continue. Israel's position is quite different, even though the threat by Hamas is orders of magnitude less than the threat posed to Ukraine by Russia. Their stated aim is to not only uh, repel the current attack, but to go forward and, and destroy Hamas entirely. And the argument that I make in that piece is that at least with respect to that further aim, there you must balance the additional defensive benefit of destroying Hamas against the total harm you are inflicting on uh, civilians. And then when you do that, uh, you see that uh, the pursuit of that further aim is disproportionate. It is coming at indefensible cost to Gaza civilians. And so Israel must simply be satisfied with less. A ceasefire, the release of its hostages, uh, and then it must simply enhance its border security to prevent future atrocities like October 7th. I understand that's not uh, an easy thing to accept, but many states around the world live next to hostile neighbors or have armed groups across their, their borders who engage in, in armed violence. And, and unfortunately, Israel may end up as one of those states, uh, but they cannot continue their current uh, military campaign, given its total cost to Gazan civilians. Okay. So I think that you've, you've raised both issues of principle of necessity and, and whether the aim and the purpose uh, of Israel is legitimate uh, and whether that satisfies the principle of necessity. But you've also really sort of advanced one of the two competing interpretations of the principle of proportionality. So Marco, maybe you can just further, especially the students out there who are, may not be familiar with the two competing interpretations of the principle of proportionality, just explain what those are, and then perhaps explain a little bit about how the alternative principle would apply in this case. I think the has done a good job of fleshing out one of them. Thanks so much, Greg. So I, I know we're running out of time. But I really think it is important to underscore the distinction made by Adele between necessity and proportionality. Necessity really is about repelling the attack. And I think most people will agree, once an attack has happened, repelling future attacks of the same kind or by the same actor. Right. right. So long as there is an intent by that actor to do it again, which is here not in doubt. Like a Hamas spokesperson goes on TV and says, yeah, we're going to do this again. So from that standpoint, there is the necessity to stop an ongoing attack. But then that raises the further question that Adil sort of uh, raised. Can a state in this situation, whether it's attacked by a state or by a non-state actor, it doesn't really matter for, uh, for these purposes. Can it choose as its war aim the complete destruction of the adversary or its military capability? That's the necessity question. And to be frank with you, I don't think the answer to that question is as easy as a deal tries to argue. And there have been quite a few situations where states have indeed, while acting in self-defense, 
pursued the total destruction of their enemy or the regime of the enemy. If you want the classical example, that's World War II. But World War II analogies, you know, I, I get a little nervous when people raise these World War II analogies. Because it's different, before the charter. different legal regime, right? So No, no, I, I agree with that. But still, like if you have a regime that is bent on aggression, that wants to conquer everybody else, at some point you can reasonably decide that the only thing you can do by means of necessity is to remove that regime. If you want a more proximate example, that's the United States Al-Qaeda Taliban 9-11. So the United States, as its stated aim said, we're going to change the government of Afghanistan because the only way of stopping al-Qaeda is to change the government of Afghanistan. And if I remember correctly, you know, only maybe Iran said, okay, this is not cool. You see what I mean? So there are examples of this. This goes to Monica's point. Well, exactly. So there are examples of this kind of very broad aim, very powerful aim being accepted. Now, the issues should it have been. There are other cases like Saddam Hussein going into Kuwait, the American forces stopping once Saddam was defeated and could no longer threaten Kuwait. That shows you you don't have to remove the regime, at least in some, some instances. Once you accept that goal, though, you know, a lot of things open up for Israel in terms of its argumentative you know, power. And the version of proportionality that Adil put forward is a sort of utilitarian, lesser evil kind of proportionality. You amass all the total benefits that Israel would get for its people or people generally. Yeah. I would like to simplify that by saying in terms of lives saved, but it's not just lives saved. And you compare that to the total harm Israel causes. But there are other competing versions of proportionality. One is a tit for tat one where you just look at the numbers of people killed on each side. The other, the dominant one, the one that if you open most textbooks, open most scholars, who have dealt with this issue, really collapses proportionality into necessity. It says you must not use more force than is necessary to achieve your aim of repelling the attack. Again, I don't think that there is any doubt, a deal you're going to push back on me if you think there is doubt, that this second version of proportionality, no more than necessary, has been by far the most dominant in legal discourse. That third version, the one a deal argues for, is I wouldn't say unreasonable. That's not what I'm saying at all. Actually, my own moral views align perfectly with that third version. But if you look at legal scholarship, that has not been the dominant approach, which leads us then to the bottom line that actually Israel can plausibly argue that its use of force is necessary because it still hasn't been able to destroy Hamas despite all the force it has used and has not exceeded the bounds of that necessity. Whereas under the third version of proportionality, I really find it difficult to understand how Israel can justify killing 15,000, 100,000, 500,000 people just to ensure complete safety for its people. My final point would be this. You will hear a lot of Israeli officials and so on, even some scholars, talk about the existential risk to the state. But it is clear there is no existential risk to the state, at least not from Hamas. You know, if you say, you know, talk about Iran, maybe that's different. Certainly not from Hamas. In their wildest dreams, Hamas could not destroy Israel, just like Al-Qaeda could not destroy the United States. So 9-11 was not an existential risk to the United States. In the same way, 7th October is not an existential risk to Israel, even though I understand fully the trauma that Israeli people feel. Yeah, but you cannot say your whole existence is under threat in the way the state of Ukraine could argue is the case with Russia. 
All right. I have many thoughts on that, but before I voice any of them, uh, Monica, what are your thoughts on this? I don't have much to add to what Adil and Marco said. So in the interest of time, I won't, I won't really throw it on. I think that I, I, I guess the one footnote I would make is that I am not sure what to make of the, of the claim of existential threat. I, I think, and I, I see this for both sides, actually. I think both sides understand themselves to be and have some facts to support the claim that they are facing an existential threat. Although for Israel, it's not, I think, I think the, I think Israelis who take this position would not say that the existential threat comes from Hamas alone. I think they would say that the existential threat comes from the co-joining, the possible co-joining of forces among it's, it's combined neighbors, including Hezbollah in the north, Iran not so far away, Syria is not so far away. So it's it's the other Arab states who have no love lost for it as a state. So I think I think that's the claim of existential threat. I'm not sure what to do with it personally. I agree that it raises all of the complications that Adele and Marco have outlined, and I think it is precisely the sense of existential threat that makes these regimes very very difficult actually to implement and apply, even among those who, who take them very seriously. And, and you can decide whether you think that Israel or Hamas do, but among other states who take them seriously, who are, who are not quite pushing Israel, for example, as hard as, as they otherwise might. Well, we have another podcast episode that digs into the principles of necessity and proportionality. For those who want to spend some more time on this, I encourage them to go and listen to that episode. But I think that in this context, right, it does raise this sort of paradox. And I think, Adil, your host sort of got at this, that we might, from a doctrinal perspective, say the right of self-defense doesn't apply here. You said Bellum has nothing to say. It's not implicated. But isn't there a risk that the consequence of that actually is that there's less constraint and less limitation on Israel? Because IHL by itself, to the extent that principles like principle of proportionality, precautions in attack, humanity, and so forth operate, they do so, as, as Marco said at the outset, on a, on a tactical operation-by-operation operation basis, and may not provide the kind of protection that the principle of proportionality would provide in the context of use that bellum applying. So is there a paradox here? Yeah, I think there is. I think that we... You know, many people, when they watch this war unfold, they're horrified by the total cost imposed on civilians, the total harm inflicted on civilians. Uh, and that is the source of the objection. And then they want to translate that moral objection into legal language. And in other contexts, the legal language that they would use would be use ad bellum proportionality. The objection would be the totality of the military campaign is excessive and unjustifiable. So I might not know of this airstrike or that airstrike exactly what Israel was targeting or how important it was or how many civilians they knew were in harm's way. But what I can do is step back and say that you cannot kill tens of thousands, injure tens of thousands, immiserate millions of people in order to achieve a defensive aim that is just not that much greater than what you could achieve through a ceasefire and, and the release of your hostages. And there's a piece in Egil Talk by Raphael von Steinberg that makes this uh, point that actually says we, we should apply self-defense here pre precisely to invoke its protective or constraining elements. 
And and just to say one thing, so the state practice that establishes, in my view, the view of proportionality that I sketched out was all in relation to Israel's prior uses of force in Gaza and in Lebanon. And the context was one of a very serious asymmetry between the two parties in terms of their military power, very serious asymmetry in terms of civilian casualties or total casualties, and a history of repeated ceasefires that held at least for a time. And it was in those contexts that states from every part of the world said, uh, the total harm you are inflicting is disproportionate. You must stop and you must accept a ceasefire just as you accepted ceasefires previously, not because that will ensure your complete security forevermore, but because it will stop the immediate threat that you face and it will spare the lives of many, many civilians. So notice that's a potentially a kind of hybrid view. It doesn't necessarily mean that when you are under attack by another state with comparable or even greater military power, that in that context, you must think about the total harm you're inflicting, right? And compare it with the, the harm you're preventing. It may be that it's only where you know a ceasefire is possible because you just had one and where the adversary does not pose an existential or even um, a particularly grave military threat, which you can mitigate in other ways, that it is in that context where uh, your use of force may be disproportionate because of the total harm you're inflicting on civilians. And I think that we're in that context again here. And so that's why I think that conception of proportionality is uh, uniquely applicable here, even granting uh, for the sake of argument that Israel's right of self-defense is implicated. All right. Well, listen, I've taken way more of your time than I asked initially. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I mean, circling back to the significance of the question, I'm not sure we have resolved a great deal, but I think it highlights the importance of this question. And I think Monica's point that whether we like it or not, bad facts may indeed give rise to bad law and confusion and silence, particularly on the part of states that are in some ways involved or implicated in the process of making this bad law is, is crucially significant. And, and therefore, you know, it just highlights the importance of these issues and the need for states to come forward and to Monica's point and clarify their position on these uh, crucial issues. But before I let you go, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that you all have more things to say about all of these issues, but before we go, um, perhaps each of you could give us one recommendation of reading that may or may not necessarily relate to these issues specifically, but you thought was uh, important. Monica, maybe we can start with you. Okay, I'm not gonna recommend a book. I'm gonna actually recommend a podcast, if that's oh, okay. Yeah. And recommend um, Ezra Klein's podcast. He's a podcaster in the New York Times. He's been doing a series on this conflict and interviewing um, people with all sorts of different perspectives. And I actually, I haven't yet listened to all of them, but the ones um, to which I have listened have been really excellent and illuminating. So I highly recommend them if you're interested in the conflict. I would second that. I actually have listened to all of them and they provide an enormous range of perspectives and like just fascinating. Marco. So I would recommend one legal article, which is the, the piece by David Kretzmer in the 2013, I think, issue of the European Journal of International Law on the different kinds of proportionality in the law of self-defense. Because he really, you know, very, very clearly distinguishes between different competing versions of proportionality and was probably, you know, the most effective in doing so. I have a, 
a sort of gut feeling that this kind of situation also calls upon us to read all sorts of literature on the, you know, relationship in law and morality and so on, you know, whether you're a positivist or something else. Because the one thing I really find most maybe vexing is not the right word, but let me use it nonetheless in this particular conflict is how so obviously people's policy and moral preferences translate into their legal preferences. And at some point for me, that comes a bit too much. You know, I, I, I am a firm believer that for law to do something useful, there has to be a space for things that are lawful but awful, where morality is the better frame. And I am sure, actually, that for this conflict, the use of bellum is certainly not terribly useful, and that we need to argue about the ethics and morality of the conflict much more than about the proportionality in the law of self-defense. You see what I mean? Interesting. Thank you. Adil. So I, I think if it's okay, I'm going to recommend two. So the one I was uh, planning to recommend uh, was a piece in the European Journal of International Law in 2020 by uh, Ardi Imsis, uh, Negotiating the Illegal on the United Nations and the Illegal Occupation of Palestine, 1967 to 2020. Um, it's a really good article. It, it intersects with things that we've been talking about, but also takes a broader lens. Um, and I think that's important because the for me, the background for everything we've been discussing uh, is the forcible denial of self-determination uh, by Israel of the, the Palestinian people. And that is a violation which all states have an obligation uh, to bring to an end uh, through cooperation and through lawful means. And so I think it's important to keep that uh, very much in mind, even as we deal with the, the current crisis. Uh, the other thing that I'll recommend is a, a short piece by Colleen Murphy, who's a, a wonderful philosopher and political theorist, uh, which she wrote on the Daily News blog on October 25th, and it is called Israel, Hamas, and Narratives of Atrocity. And I think it's just a very thoughtful and humane post that really grapples with the difficulty uh, that people who are facing uh, trauma have in retaining a, a clear sense and clear grasp of the humanity of people who they perceive to be on the other side. And I think it is both useful for folks who, who have strong feelings on one side or the other of the conflict, but also for people who are viewing the very, very strong feelings uh, by Israelis and Palestinians and trying to remember, remind themselves how the world looks to them. That if you have lost a loved one or know someone who has in this conflict, why it can be so difficult to keep your moral compass and how impressive it is that so many Israelis and Palestinians have managed to do so despite all the, the carnage they've witnessed and all the, the trauma they've experienced. And I just think it's a, it's a really wonderful and humane piece of work. All right. Well, Thank you all so much for your insights and for your time. I think this is going to be really helpful for, for listeners. Uh, I look forward to having you all on again at some point. Monica, you'll have to have you and Ingrid on to talk about the new piece. But thanks all very much again. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. Your help with the promotion really can make a difference in spreading the word and expanding the exposure of the podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, or X, as it's now called, at, at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care.